Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. Take your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And while you're turning there, let me take care of a couple of housekeeping measures. Of course, remember that today we'll begin our marriage class at 4 o'clock. If you plan to attend that, remember we've bribed our babysitters with pizza. So uh, our teenagers will need just a couple of extra dollars for us to order them some pizza and to take care of those kids. So uh, make sure that uh, if you're planning to attend that class, you bring just a couple of uh, dollars with you so we can get them something to eat. And we really appreciate uh, them for doing that. Also, uh, you'll probably already recognize this in the bulletin, but uh, we have uh, been installed with a new Wi-Fi network here. I know many of you probably use your Bibles as you study and you keep up with the text we're looking at in your Bible app. You can connect to our guest network and the password for that is in the bulletin. So you can make sure if you don't want to use up your cellular data and charge yourself money, you can use that free network. It's called Bowden Guest, and you can use that. And it won't hinder our uh, plans to be live streaming in the future any at all, but uh, it will give you access to use the internet if you do that to use your Bible during Bible study. So uh, that password is in the bulletin, and please remember that it is case sensitive. So where you see a capital letter, you're going to have to put a capital letter, and uh, where there are lowercase levels, you'll have to put lowercase letters. So please keep that in mind. It is extremely good to see everybody this morning. We're going to continue our series of lessons on being encouragers and being encouraged by looking at Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. Let me start this lesson by asking you a question. Has there ever been anything in your life that you would describe as a game changer? Now, a game changer, by its very definition, is something that comes into our life. Maybe it's an ideology. Or maybe it's a technique we learn in doing something useful. Maybe it's a, a, some kind of tool or technology that we get that literally could change and often does change the course of our life. Now, I don't own one of these, but my friends who do own them tell me that it is a game changer to purchase what is called a rainbow vacuum. Now, Corey is probably one of the best salesmen in this congregation for one. He loves his, a rainbow vacuum. People that own them say that they literally change the way that you clean your house, and it will change the way you view dust and things in your home. We all know that many of us have what we would call a game changer in our smartphones, The smartphones, they changed everything that we did. They redefined our lives. We don't own TomToms or Garmin's. I don't know, some of you may still own one. But if you're going somewhere, you're going to use your GPS. If you're going to listen to music, you're probably going to use your phone. If you want to call somebody, you'll use your phone. If you want to text them, if you want to video call them, you can do it anywhere at any time with your phone. It was a game changer when that technology came into the world, and it has continued to revolutionize the world. Other more archaic things have happened. The printing press, electricity, things along the the way throughout history have changed the course of history. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 and 20 is a group of people that experienced the most intense game changer ever. And that's Jesus. Now, look down with me in Acts chapter 20 and verse 1 as we talk about this game-changing situation that takes place 
in the city of Ephesus. Read verse 1 with me. Acts 20 and verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging them, there's our theme, encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Paul felt it necessary to bring the church to himself and to encourage them. So what I want us to do over the next two Sundays is ask ourselves why. Why did Paul have to encourage the church? What was it that happened in the previous verses that caused him to have to encourage the church to build them up before he left? And I want to show you just what that is. We'll be in Acts 19 for two Sundays. For this Sunday, start with me in Acts 19 and verse 8. Let's find out why Paul had to encourage the church in the city of Ephesus. Next, Acts 19 and verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away for the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits were coming out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, I'll get that word right in a minute. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the, invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of those and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What happened in Ephesus that caused Paul to have to encourage the church? This Sunday we'll look at part 1, verses 8 through 20. Let's get a little background. First of all, Paul is on what we call his third missionary journey. And these were just trips where Paul would travel around the eastern world and he would find people and teach them about Jesus and build up churches. Many places he established congregations for the first time and he wanted them to thrive. He was just spreading the message of Jesus. In Acts 19, Paul finds himself in this city, the city of Ephesus. Now, let me zoom the map in for you. Paul comes to the city of Ephesus and he does what he does every time he gets to the city. He goes and he finds the synagogue. Now, this makes logical sense. When you come to a city and you want to tell people about God, what do you do? Well, you go to the people who already believe in God. And that's what he did. He went to the synagogue. And Acts chapter 19 and verse 8 tells me that he, in the synagogue, reasoned for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, that figure, three months, may not mean much to you, but that's actually really significant. Because most of the time when Paul came into a city, they didn't let him stay in the synagogue very long before they chased him out. 
In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 17, he came to Thessalonica, and within three days they were ready to kill him. <laughs> they were done with Paul. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody, and after a couple of hours you're like, all right, I have had enough. Okay, that's how they felt about Paul. They said, we have had enough. We can't take it anymore. And so in Acts 17, they chased him out of the city. Well, he gets to Ephesus, and they let him stay for three years. And the Bible tells me that in those three years, he did two things. He reasoned, and he persuaded with them about the kingdom of God. Now, that word reason in the Bible means to speak with uh, uh, you know, thoroughness. It means to speak something thoroughly. Now, when you and I talk about our faith, I want us to remember that our faith should be something that is reasonable. Our faith shouldn't be something that is illogical. In fact, that's never really what the Bible teaches us faith is. It is faith in something that I am seeing partial evidence for now, but I know is greater evidence down the road. For instance, I believe in God because I see his existence partially in the world created around me. And I know that his existence is greater than the world created around me, but I see his fingerprints everywhere. That's faith. Faith in the Bible is never some illogical, irrational, and unreasonable way of thinking. And Paul didn't use irrational and illogical arguments. He brought to them reason and logic. But he did it with an attitude. He says in that passage that he spoke with them boldly. The word boldly means to say something without restraint. Not to hold back. To say what needs to be said in the way that it needs to be said. You know, when you and I talk about God, we should speak the truth. We should speak it in love, but we should still speak the truth. There are some things about God's Word that must be said boldly. I remember when I first became a preacher, Morgan and I met a lady that visited, and uh, we began to build a relationship with her, and we ultimately were able to set up a Bible study with her. And she was telling me things about her religious background, and I was trying to hint at her that, the things that you're telling me aren't really matching in the Bible. To do that, I was taking her to passages and saying, you know, this is what the Bible says, but, you know, what you're telling me really doesn't resemble the Bible much at all. And she would say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you, you know, you said this. What do you think about that compared to the Bible? Well, that's okay. And we just continued to go round and round until finally she looked at me. Now, I was a new preacher, and I was super nervous. She said, Josh, just tell me what you're trying to tell me. And I finally said, okay, ma'am. The things you're telling me I don't find in the Bible. And I'm concerned about your soul because I want to do what God says, and I, I hope you do too. I think you do. And the relationship was healthy after that. But she said, I need you just to tell it. Quit restraining yourself. Quit holding back. Why do we restrain ourselves sometimes? I think there's a number of reasons. One of the reasons you and I restrain what we say often because we're afraid that the people who may hear it, they can't bear to hear it. It's like they, they, they can't handle the truth sometimes. And Reality is that there are people in the world today that can't handle the truth, but that doesn't mean we hold back from saying it. Another reason we restrain sometimes is because we are afraid of what will happen when we say the truth. We're afraid that maybe they'll be dismissive and the relationship will change or we'll anger them in some way by what we've said. The Bible says that Paul didn't do that. He spoke the truth boldly. Now remember, he was in the synagogue. He was a Jew, formally, talking to Jews Currently, who better to give them logical reasons for why they should believe in Jesus? And Paul spoke the word of God boldly. It says he, he spoke it boldly with reason. That's exactly what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, isn't it? Our faith should be reasonable. You and I aren't Christians for some illogical reason. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says we need to be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Do you have a reason why you're a Christian? 
Is there a logical reason why you believe in God? And are you able to communicate that? I hope there is. There should be a logical reason. We're not Christians because of some superstitious belief. We're Christians because evidence pulls out that God is the creator of the universe. And our faith should be based on that logic and reason. And what happens when you use logic and reason? Same thing that happens with Paul. He used reason and he persuaded some of them. Now, I'm not going to say that every person in the world will listen to logic. In fact, you probably have people in your life you know that do not listen to logic. They do not listen to reason. There are people in our population that refuse to listen to reason and logic. But there are those who do. And isn't that the parable of the sower? He said that you sow the word of God. Some people, they believe it, but they kind of have a superficial faith, and so it doesn't last long. Some people, you throw it out there, their heart's so hard, they won't even take it in. Other people, you throw it out there, and the cares of the world choke them out, and they, they, won't, they won't believe it. And then other people have good hearts, and they listen to the logic and the reason of Scripture. That's what Paul did in Acts chapter 19 and verse 8. He came to the synagogue, and he reasoned with them for three months. Now, verse 9 tells me this. When some of the people, he came into Ephesus, some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief. Now, that word stubborn is a common word used for the people of Israel, who in the wilderness saw that God took care of them, saw that God could provide for them, and saw that God would bring them victory, and yet they still wanted to go be slaves in Egypt. They were stubborn. They, they, it couldn't get through their mind. Have you ever wanted to, uh, this is kind of a crude saying, I don't mean it in a bad way, but you ever asked some, or wanted somebody to get something through a thickness in their skull? You know, I want this to get through the thickness of your head. I want this reason to soak in because you're stubborn. It, it's, it's like trying to pound against a rock. It's hard to get something in. And that's what happened with these people. Paul was reasoning with them. He was telling them truth, and they weren't listening because they had a thickness, a stubbornness, to their life. And that's what happened. They were stubborn and they continued in unbelief. They didn't just unbelieve, he said, but they started to speak evil of the church in the congregation. Now, the congregation is just a Greek word that means the general populace, which in reality, folks, most people don't agree with what the church does. You know, we're getting closer to that being less of a societal accepted idea that the church operates in the way that it does. But nonetheless, that was still true then. Even though we see it maybe more today, it, it's always been true that people of the world that are dedicated to the world, they, they don't understand why the church operates the way it does, so they speak evil of it. In fact, Jesus tells us that just like the Israelites were stubborn, that people in this world will be stubborn, they won't understand. He said it would come when people wouldn't believe. John also said it in uh, 1 John 3 and verse 13. He said, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, that shouldn't be something that surprises. Sometimes it does, but it shouldn't. And these people became stubborn. So what did Paul do? Did Paul throw his hands up in the air and say, I'm done. Three months wasted. I'm out of here. No, the Bible tells me in Acts chapter 19 and verse 9 that Paul, instead of throwing his hands up and giving up, he just picked up Christians and he relocated them to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, I want to stick on this for just a moment because there's a big point in here I'm going to bring out. We're going to spend a few minutes on this. Instead of throwing his hands up, the Bible says that Paul moved his base of operations to a place called the School of Tyrannus. Now, there's a lot we don't know about this, but what we do know is it's probably a lecture hall where they talked about medicine or psychology or things like that, philosophy. And Paul was able to use this hall to preach the gospel. Now, if you know much about how the Bible was compiled, we have tons of different manuscripts that were put together to make the Bible. 
One of the manuscripts of the book of Acts actually includes that Paul taught in this school from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. That he taught from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. Now, that would make sense because he's in the Mediterranean world. And if you know much about Mediterranean world, they're a little bit smarter than we are here in America. Let me explain to you why. They practice something that is called uh, the siesta. Now, we need to adopt this into America, guys. This is like the quintessential everyday Sunday afternoon nap. You know how much you love Sunday afternoon naps? They did it every day. You see, the Mediterranean culture was so hot that you would wake up when the sun came up and you would go to work. And you would work from maybe 7 a.m. or 6.30 or 6, whenever the sun came up, until 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, schools shut down, businesses shut down, everyone went home, and they took a five-hour nap every single day. Now, the word siesta comes from a Latin word, which means the fifth hour. But nonetheless, we know that as the common practice of what they practiced in the first century. So the Western text tells me that Paul taught in this school from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, which would have been from 11 until 4. Now, if I follow some of what Paul says about his time in Ephesus, this is what I learned. First, Acts 20, Paul worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. You probably remember that. He worked independently in some cases. Other places he had congregations that supported him so that he could do his work. And he worked to be able to provide for himself. He says that in Acts 20, verses 33 through 32. I didn't... I didn't want anybody's gold or silver or clothing. I worked with my own hands so as not to prevent the gospel from spreading. He uses that philosophy or those words in 1 Thessalonians. You go to Acts 20 and verse 20, you'll learn that Paul, he never stopped declaring anything that was helpful to the Christians, but he taught both in public, that's the school of Tyrannus, and then he also taught house to house. You also go to Acts 20 and verse 31, and he says that I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You take all that information, you compile it together, we can kind of make this assumption. Paul spent his time working and preaching, and working and preaching, and working and preaching. Paul was a man of diligence. Now, this is conjecture. We don't know this for sure, certain. We don't have a diary from Paul or anything. But we could guess that he probably worked as they did. In the morning, he would make tents, probably in the workshop of Aquila and Priscilla. Then after that, from 11 to 4, he would go and teach in the school of Tyrannus, tell people about God. Then from 4 to 9.30, go back to making tents, just like the whole society, go back to working. Then from 9.30 to 12, he would preach. Now, you know that he preached till midnight, because one time he preached till midnight, and a man fell out the window and died. And maybe that's the warning to preachers not to preach till midnight. If you do, somebody will die. I don't know if that's what that means, but, you know, he would preach into the night the gospel. I want to point this out. Paul was a man of diligence. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. How do we make sure that the church is rich? Now, I'm not talking about money. We'll talk about money in a moment. How do you and I make sure that the church is rich in work, that it's rich in effort, and that it's rich in people being reached with the gospel? We work with diligence, just like Paul. You can see from our supposed schedule Paul was a hard worker, and he came into Ephesus, and that hard work starts to pay off. This is the reason I bring this up. Because he was working hard, because the church was working hard, the church began to rapidly grow. Listen to what it says in verse 10. It continued for two years. That's this method of him working, preaching the gospel, teaching in the school of Tyrannus, working with his own hands. 
He continued this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, folks, don't underestimate the power of that verse right there. Two years Paul worked, and in those two years, the Bible says, every person in Asia heard about Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's efforts to spread the word of God, not just through his city, but in his area, were widely profitable. I want to take you to a passage. Now, we're going to get to verse 26 next week. I don't want to step on my lesson's toes for next week too much. But what you're going to see play out is that the people of Ephesus begin to take notice of how much the gospel is spreading. And one individual, a man by the name of Demetrius, he was like a souvenir maker, if you will, in Ephesus. He made silver statues to the god Artemis. It's like uh, when you go to Gatlinburg and get a magnet with someone's name on it and bring it back, you know, a souvenir. He made souvenirs. So when you would come to see the temple of Artemis, you would buy a souvenir and take it home. What happens is Demetrius gets upset because he has seen a tremendous decline in his business since Paul came to town. Listen, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in also all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He's appealing to all his fellow silversmiths and workers who sell idols. These people are ruining our business. So you combine that with the verse we just read. The Bible tells me that Paul worked so hard and the church was growing so rapidly that Judaism was feeling it. Their pews, if you will, just imagine, their pews were getting more empty by the week. The Gentiles were feeling it. The pagan worshipers, their pews were getting more empty by the week because people were going to Christianity. And then Demetrius tells us the church was growing so much, not just did other religions feel it, but the economy was changing. I want you to picture that. The church growing so much that the economy begins to change in a city. That businesses selling sinful things begin to have to worry because their business is going down so much. I tell you what, what we're going to see over the next couple of verses is a tremendous amount of change that comes because of the work of Paul. Now, let me know real quick. Let me take a, a, a rabbit trail for a moment and reference our yearly theme. If you study the city of Ephesus, and we won't get into this this morning for time's sake, but if you look at who all Paul worked with in the city of Ephesus, he didn't do it alone. The Bible tells me that Timothy and Titus worked with him in Ephesus. A man by the name of Erastus, we'll meet him next week. A man by the name of Sosthenes, Epaphras, Archippus, Gaius, Aristarchus, Aquila, Priscilla. That's just 10 off the top of the list that worked with Paul. If we want the church to make a huge impact on our community, we have to work together. See how I did that there? Put the thing back in there. We've got to work together. Paul made that impact not on his own. Paul made that impact because he was working with the church together. And they were working diligently. They weren't working lackadaisically. They were working hard. And it made a major impact on the society around them. Verses 11 and 12 say this. So the, the church is making an impact. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now, please understand, every miracle by its very nature is extraordinary. The thing that Luke is pointing out here is that the mode of this miracle is extraordinary. 
Every miracle is extraordinary. But these people were taking the aprons and the handkerchiefs that Paul used in his work, and they were taking them just because they had touched his skin, and they were healing people. Now, keep that in your mind, how extraordinary the miracles of God are, because that's going to come into play in just a moment. But these miracles... They were amazing. Now, this isn't the only time that a miracle has been done not with someone's hands. You remember in Mark chapter 5, um, we'll get back to that slide in a minute. Mark chapter 5, you remember last week we, we talked about the lady with the 12-year flow of blood. She came up and just touched Jesus' garment and was healed. Acts 5, Peter wait, uh, people were waiting for Peter's shadow to fall on them to be healed. Just as shadow healed people. How amazing is that? You see, when you compare what the gods of this world can do and what the God of the heavens can do, it is incomparable. Incomparable. Because the Bible tells me in Acts chapter 19 and verse 13 that the people of the time, especially these, uh, if you have the King James in front of you, it's going to use the word vagabond. It means they traveled from place to place. Uh, we're going to see in a moment they're frauds, and people who are frauds can't stay anywhere any long, any length of time, because they'll get found out. But these exorcists that were Jewish... They wanted to pull out demons just as Paul did. And so they decided, hey, let's use Paul's little incantation. I'm going to pull this demon out by the Jesus that Paul preaches. They thought that they wanted to do what Paul could do. And so they set out to do it. And verses 14 through 16 tell us just what happened. Keep in mind what God can do and the success the church is having, and listen to what happens when somebody who's not of God tries to do something like that. Beginning in verse 14. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit asked them, remember they said, we adjure you, we command you to come out by the Jesus that Paul preaches. He says, all right, I know Jesus. That word no means I acknowledge Jesus. I acknowledge his authority. And Paul, I recognize. I recognize Paul. I recognize Jesus. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, think about this. Paul is making tents, and when he takes his apron off, people are just grabbing his apron and touching people to heal them because God is doing these extraordinary miracles. It had nothing to do with Paul. It had to do with Paul's faith and God having chosen him as an individual to be a messenger of the gospel. So God was doing these miracles through Paul. It wasn't Paul doing the miracles. It was God doing those miracles. So they were taking these aprons, and God was performing these miracles as they touched people. These seven Jewish exorcists come up to a man that has a demon. They say, you know what? We're going to use the same words Paul uses. We adjure you to come out by the, by the Jesus that Paul preaches. And that demon looks at him and says, I know them, but I don't know who you are. And he proceeds to do what we call put a whooping on them boys. It says in that text, he leaped on them, he mastered them, he overpowered them, and because of what he did, now remember, this is in a city of people, you're seeing God through an apron heal people, and these frauds come in, and what do people see when those frauds come in? Seven men run out of a house stark naked because they couldn't even handle a demon. Now you compare what God does with what man's gods do. It's incomparable. You remember uh, Ezekiel, uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 18? 
He challenges the prophets of Baal, and he says, let's see whose God is really God. Well, let's see. It's a, it's a logical challenge. I mean, that's, that seems like it would have been an awesome thing to watch. They build two altars, cut up two bulls, spread out the meat across the altars, and he says to the prophets of Baal, you pray to Baal and tell Baal to send fire down to consume this altar. And the prophets of Baal get to praying and hollering and screaming and cutting themselves and laying on the ground and praying and wailing. And, you know, Elijah kind of gets that humor in that text. And he says, well, maybe he's off relieving himself. We might need to wait till he comes back. Or maybe he's taking a nap. You might need to be louder to wake him up. And they do nothing. Then Elijah gets them to put all that water on the altar and surround the altar with water. And he prays one prayer to God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the entire altar. What man can do versus what God can do is incomparable. What false gods can do versus what the real God can do is incomparable. And guess what happens when people see that? Verse 17. This became known to all the, the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. People were acknowledging that God is God, and then many people who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now I want you to remember that Ephesus, and we're going to see this a little next week too, was a city filled with magicians and frauds and people that did sleight of hands to try and earn a living. It was a den of thieves is what it was. And a lot of people when they have that occupation they would claim supernatural ability, that there was a supernatural force behind them causing the magic to happen, but really it was just a sleight of hand. You know that because today a lot of magicians, they don't claim any supernatural power. They just do these tricks as a sleight of hand. But at that time, that magician code was not only something that was kept secret. You don't want people to know the magic secret of how to do your trick, but it was also a family tradition. Those secrets would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. When Morgan and I got married, her mom had a bread and jelly business, and she had a pound cake recipe. And when we got married, a bunch of ladies at church got recipe cards, and they wrote their favorite recipes on them, and we have those at the house. Morgan's mom wrote her pound cake recipe. At the bottom of that recipe are four words, do not share this. <laughs> You know, you ever had a family secret? Uh, a couple of years ago, my sister wanted to get her a cutting board that had that recipe burned in it, and I sent her a picture, and they actually burned the do not share this into that cutting board. So you even see that part at the bottom of the recipe, right? But family secrets are important, things like that. I mean, sometimes that's just silly. But for these people, it's their livelihood. That's how they supported their families. And the Bible says that people believed in the power of God above this other superstitious stuff so much that they were divulging their practices, they were laying it all out for people. They were truly making radical changes. And then the Bible tells me this, that a number of people who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of all of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, what happens is people start to believe in God so much, they don't just divulge their practices. They bring these books and these scrolls that would have included things like love potions and how to exercise a demon and how to, you know, do whatever. And they brought these books and they burned them. Now, the silver coins mentioned in verse 19 are what are called a drachma. And a drachma was a similar form of currency to uh, what we know in the New Testament as the, the daily coinage uh, of the day. And I can't remember what it was called. It's in my notes. Uh, the, the, uh, anyways, the one that was worth a day's wage uh, in the Roman culture. I'll find it in my notes here in just a moment. But it was the, the currency that was worth a day's wage in the, uh, in the Roman culture. And that drachma was very similar. It was worth a day's wage. Denarius, that's it. 
it was very similar to the denarius. Now, what they burned was worth 50,000 days of work. Okay, you look up the median income in the state of Georgia, it's $55,000 a year. Most Americans work 260 days a year. That's five days a week for 52 weeks. If you take 55000 and divide it by that number, you get that Americans basically make $200 a day, just north of that. You know how much those books cost that they lit on fire in Acts 19? $10 million. You want to talk about something being a game changer. Not only were these people making a statement that we don't believe this anymore, they were saying this has no part of us anymore. It was a game changer. Now, the church doesn't seem like it needs much, much encouragement right now, but you're going to need to come back next Sunday because what's going to happen after this in Acts 19 is going to rock the faith of some individuals, and Paul has to encourage them to remain faithful. But let me ask you a question. Before we get to the encouragement part next week, let's end our lesson on this question. How much of a difference has Jesus made in our lives? You look at the life of Paul and you can see a drastic difference in the way he lived before he was a Christian and the way he lived after he became a Christian. How much of a difference does Jesus make in our life today? For these people, it made a difference in the economy. Could you imagine the people about and saying that the economy here has changed because the people in this building are so diligent? The buildings of other faiths around this area, their pews are getting empty Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And they're asking, where are they going? Oh, they're going over there to serve Jesus. Could you imagine the church being so strong it changes the economy? Could you imagine the church being so strong that people who previously had everybody duped the reason and the logic of God's word was showing them out to be fools. Could you imagine the church being so strong that people were giving up not only things they used to do, but ways they used to live, secrets they based their entire identity on because God was truly the most powerful thing they had ever seen. How much difference does Jesus make in our life today? For these people, he was a game changer. He changed everything. What has he changed for you? What difference has Jesus made in your life today? If he hasn't made much of a difference, I would encourage you to come see the amazing things about him. Because he can change you into somebody you never thought you were and you never understood that you could be. Jesus can make us into the most important thing and that's righteous before God. He forgives our sins. So maybe you need to have your sins forgiven this morning. Maybe you need to allow Jesus to make the most important change in your life. Maybe you need him to be that game changer. Maybe you need to come back to the Lord because at one point he somewhat changed the game, but you gave it up because other, thing, other things caught your attention and you need to return to the Lord. Whatever the case is this morning, I would encourage you to come as together we stand and as we sing.